If you had a million dollars right now, where would you invest it? If you said stocks and bonds, you may want to think again. After all, a number of equity research firms forecast returns of less than 6% until 2035. Recently, Bloomberg asked the same question to a panel of leading financial experts, and after all, they had the same answer. Consider alternative investments such as art. It makes sense when you think about it. From mega-billionaires Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson to prominent endowments, many investors actively collect art. In fact, institutions with holdings over a billion dollars have increased their allocation to alternatives by over 10x since 2000. When you consider that contemporary art prices have outperformed the S&P 500 by nearly twofold from 1995 to 2020, it's easy to see why. But I don't have tens of millions to buy a masterpiece myself, so what good is any of this? Well, thanks to Masterworks.io, a platform democratizing the exclusive $6 trillion world of art investing, I'm able to personally invest in paintings by some of the most lucrative artists like Basquiat and Picasso using the Masterworks platform. Masterworks.io has a long wait list, but they've given me 135 passes to skip it. To secure your spot at the front of the line, head to Masterworks.io slash Meb. That's Masterworks.io slash Meb. I'll see you there. See important disclosures at Masterworks.io slash Disclaimer. Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today, we have an episode in our Africa Startup Series. If you look out the horizon in the next few decades, arguably no place in the world has more tailwinds than Africa. And right now, the startup scene in Africa is on fire, with amazing companies being founded, fundraising records being set, and M&A heating up. We've already featured some of the top companies from Africa, like rocket ship unicorn Chipper Cash and Smile Identity. But in addition to these world-changing startups, we'll also talk to those that are boots on the ground investing and allocating across the continent to learn firsthand about why Africa presents such a unique opportunity today. Please enjoy today's show in the Africa Startup Series. What's up, everybody? Another amazing episode today in our African Startup Series. Our guest is a general partner for Sherpa Ventures which focuses on pre-seed investments across Africa. He's also the co-founder of Venture for Africa, a fellowship for those interested in working for early stage startups in Africa. In today's show, we hear from someone who's been there for the evolution of the African startup scene. We talk about the factors behind the explosive growth the continent has seen in the past few years. Then we hear what led him to launch his own fund and the stories behind some of the companies he's funded, which exemplify both the opportunities and challenges they face. As we wind down, Aaron shares the difference between the startup community in Africa and Silicon Valley. Please enjoy this episode with Sherpa Ventures, Aaron Fu. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Meb. Excited to chat. You are a citizen of the world. Where do we find you today? I'm actually sitting in Paris right now. Just got in a couple hours ago. How is the City of Lights? Is that the City of Lights? Did I just mess that up? It is the city of light. <laughs> it is bursting with light and life. Yeah. Yeah. Summer's in Paris, out of this world. Sweet. Well, we're going to be talking about lots of stuff today, startup investing, but you've kind of been all over Australia, Czech Republic, Singapore, 
what was sort of the timeline for you? Give the listeners a little background because I want to hear how eventually you landed on the continent of Africa to be spending a lot of your time. But uh, give us the Aaron preview. <laughs> well, I, I think I had, when I was a little child, I had a dream to live on every continent in the world. And I've so far been trying to spend five years in each continent. I pretty much have South America left to go. That's a pretty good finale. Yeah, I think it's a nice sort of thing to cap it off. But always had a deep interest in emerging markets. And I guess more importantly, sort of the solutions that we can build to solve some of the more pressing problems. I think working in the Czech Republic as a start to the career was certainly not a true emerging market in the sense, but I already saw an opportunity to rebuild banking products and rebuild sort of like retail products in a way that had never been done before because they had never sort of seen that kind of approach. And that's sort of what really excites me about Africa, like getting to build and addressing systems from scratch, bases like technology that we have today, getting to build payment systems, basic technology that we have today, and not really have to deal with a lot of that legacy stuff. A lot of developed economies are taking so long to transition from cards. I think having a blank slate is really, really exciting. So, so I actually grew up in Australia for about 10 years of my life. And then, like I mentioned, my first ever job in the world is actually in the Czech Republic. I sort of like gave my friends and family a bit of a choice. I either did Societe General in the Czech Republic, or I would join the Afghan International Development Bank back then, based out of Kabul. And I think everyone strongly urged me not to do Kabul, which is why I ended up in the Czech Republic. And since then, I spent some time in the UK, and then moved back to Asia for a little bit, and then got myself transferred to Africa to lead digital financial services for Standard Chartered across a couple of markets, and then saw way more innovation happening outside the bank than in the bank. And that's kind of when I made a switch. That's a great intro. So give us a little context. What year would this have been? And what was sort of the initial focus for you? The very first venture firm I joined in Africa was a firm based out of Hong Kong called Nest. This was back in 2015. And our thesis at the time was to try and invest in entrepreneurs and startups in Africa to bring them across to Asia. What we saw was that from a demographic point of view, there were a ton of similarities. We're talking about primarily agriculture-based economies, very young populations, rapidly urbanizing populations, very high mobile adoption, but still sort of like a population that sort of spread across a pretty large geography. So we thought to ourselves, wouldn't it be cool if instead of Africa importing technology, which is kind of where it was before, and then now it's kind of in the space where it's building its own solutions, what if Africa could actually export technology and export solutions to the rest of the world? So our thesis was to try and do that and bridge them across to Asia. We were very lucky that in our four investments that we made, all of them managed to secure significant contracts with banks, insurance companies, and things like that in Asia. But of course, I think a lot of the, the Asian banking partners that we were working with were very surprised that like, technology like that could come from Africa. Because I think the perception of like what Africa is, it's like it's all about aid, it's all about poverty, it's all about war. No one really thinks that like the light touch mobile analytic solution that can power my next generation of customer acquisition could come from Ghana, as an example. So we faced a bit of an uphill climb there. But yeah, that was kind of my first thought. And so walk us forward. So you guys, I mean, that feels a little early. I mean, we're seeing such a massive in my opinion, interest in sort of early stages of a boom in Africa and that ecosystem. You're starting to see some of the big headline names with M&A and companies going public, but not as much in 2015. So take us forward. What was the initial jump? Because you got about two or three different 
things you're working on. So walk us forward to present day, last few years, what you've been up to. Absolutely. I mean, before we leave the point on sort of where it was before, I definitely remember that back in Kenya at Ness, being able to raise a half a million dollar round in a year was considered really fast and a lot of money. If you had gotten to that level, you were sort of one of 10, one of five standout companies. These days, every month you see sort of like five, 10 companies that raise a million in like less than 30 days. So I think the evolution has really sort of gone leaps and bounds in the last five, six years. Was there any sort of specific, if you look back on it, catalyst or was it more of just like a snowball effect of like gaining critical number of engineers and people interested in the ecosystem, people getting comfort, exit? Like, was there anything in particular that you think caused this change or was it more just a natural evolution? I think it's a confluence of a ton of factors. And I think I wouldn't do it justice by generalizing too much, but here are a couple of trends. So A, I think seven, eight years ago, there were a number of technology companies, but there weren't really sort of a ton of real startups in the way that the rest of the world understands them. And that sort of base layer wasn't quite there yet. And PESA was, the mobile money systems were beginning to get a bit more entrenched, but the APIs weren't really open. So people weren't really building on top of that to sort of like take it a little bit further. So I'd say that from an infrastructure kind of side of things, maybe things weren't ready. I also think that now with people having built technology companies and actually failed a couple of times, you're now seeing people who have built tech startups two or three times in a row and are now building their third or fourth, which really changes how they're approaching fundraising as well as building and growing their teams. I think also from a talent perspective, you're now seeing with all the recent stories as well, like a ton of really, really amazing people who have either moved across in their generation or a few generations ago to Europe, to the US, like really see coming back home and building a startup back home to be a very viable and lucrative and attractive option. I think all of these factors had a couple of accelerants, obviously. So I think on the talent front, the sort of Black Lives Matter sort of protests really sort of like invigorated a lot of people to be like, if I'm not welcome here, maybe I should really go back to like where I feel a little bit more comfortable and more at home. I think on the capital front, you really began to see more and more, I guess, global players start really poking around in Africa. And a few of those deals really worked out. I think Twiga by far in Kenya. So Grant's a good friend. He sits on the investment committee at Sherpa Ventures. I think he really put Kenya on the map in many ways and forms. He was able to attract investors that had never looked at a continent before. He was able to prove the opportunity in serving mass market, micro merchants and working in the ivory sector. And yeah, I mean, people had come before him to do very similar things. But I think the kind of level he was able to take it to and the kind of team he was able to build and the kind of investors he was able to bring through was very much sort of that shining light in the ecosystem. Obviously, there were many that came before. I don't know. I, I love using this sort of Star Trek analogy, right? Where the rest of the galaxy didn't really pay notice until a ship hit light speed. So you need sort of that couple of those ships to like actually hit light speed to have the rest of the world pay attention. And then I think it took Africa a while to get to those few. Yeah. Well, it definitely feels like it's reached an inflection point. All right. So post-Nest, keep taking us along the journey. Yeah, sure. So post-Nest, I was really curious because we were sitting sort of more at the seed, post-seed kind of space. And I was really curious about why the pipeline was as thin as it was at the point in time. Why weren't there more companies with global ambitions? Why weren't there more companies that were thinking about other emerging markets and not just selling up to the UK or selling up to Europe? And so I decided to investigate that a little bit further. And that was when I joined MEST. 
which was a pre-team, pre-idea incubator based out in Ghana. And so I was really curious about like what happens pre-seed, right? Pre-seed is basically like pre-team, pre-idea, and, and what happens at that juncture. What I really was curious about with Mess's model is it took just raw talent from all across the continent, flew them into Ghana to live together, work together, build product together for an entire year. We see programs like Antler and Entrepreneur First do that over a three to six month period. In this scenario, it really is a whole year. And it's almost like a year-long festival where they literally are embedded in each other's lives. The model then was to try and invest in a few of the companies that would come out of the incubator, but then also really force them to experiment, right? Force them to look at different types of sectors, different types of business model, reconfigure their teams over the course of the year. And it was really exciting to see like, an Ivorian and a Kenyan and a Nigerian and a South African get together in the same team to figure out like what's interesting to build on the continent and what's interesting in terms of like commonalities across their markets that they can sort of like get a bit of a head start in building a Pan-African firm. So that was for a little bit of time. And then I also helped the Africa Leadership Academy, which is one of the sort of leading innovative high schools in Africa, build out a debt fund as well, because I was also curious about the role of sort of like catalytic capital in the sense. If we're able to offer a bit of debt funding, which is first loss, uh, which will you know take a lot of the due diligence burden off angels, would that inspire more people to invest into younger entrepreneurs? And right now, I spend most of my time at the Catalyst Fund, which is an inclusive tech accelerator across Latin America, Africa, as well as Asia. A large part of our portfolio is in Africa. And the way we work is through a combination of very generous grant capital, so $100,000 of that, and then $100,000 of like deep venture building support. Some of the things that we do include lending business models, so helping a company build out a lending business. We go as deep as to help you build a mobile app if you're early enough that you haven't done that yet. So really, really, really quite hands-on. Then we backed about more than 50 companies right now. They've since gone on to raise more than $260 million. And yeah, some names that you might know of, uh, Chipper Cash, Soko Watch. And it's been really cool to get to work with these companies all across these geographies. And one of the most exciting parts about the Catalyst Fund is our ability to back similar founders using similar models in Latin America, Asia, and Africa at the same time. And having them discuss the challenges that they are facing with their models is very, very fascinating. In December last year, I also launched my own fund. So Sherpa Ventures is focused on pre-seed just in Africa. We've made 11 investments so far. So I used to say we move at the pace of about a deal a month, but I think we're going a little bit quicker than that. We try and be like first capital in. So we usually find ourselves among a group of angels and we see our role as being sort of like that added layer of institution to sort of like help these angels do a bit of due diligence before. We're very proud of our LP base as well. So most of our LPs are actually founders and operators of startups in Africa and in broader emerging markets. That's one core group. Another core group are individuals who have invested heavily across Asia and the Middle East, but have never written Africa checks. And so I'm looking to sort of explore that a little bit more. And as a result, we get very hands-on with the teams there too, because these are people who have either seen the same business model elsewhere, or have actually built the same business model in another geography in Africa too. So really excited about that. There's a lot of different ways we can go. We've had a couple of the portfolio companies you mentioned, Chipper, we had Ham on the podcast, and that's fun because it was kind of midway through their rocket ship part of their journey. And then Mark at Smile Identity, 
as well. And it's been fun to kind of hear their stories. But talk to me a little bit about Sherpa and you guys' framework. I mean, I'm thinking in my head of pre-seed in a place like the U.S., which is hard enough. You don't have a whole lot of analytics. You don't have a lot of traction to speak of. Explain to me how that whole process works. I mean, being with experience at an accelerator, you certainly have had a little bit of time to kind of get a feel for that, not just as a concept, but also on the continent. So just walk us through. Tell us a little bit more about it. What do you look for? Are there red flags, green flags, all that good stuff? Yeah, for sure. And very keen observation that like certainly we've taken in a lot of our learnings from the other programs and funds that we've run. So obviously, we have very little traction to look at. We spend a lot of time on team. So at MESS, when we were interviewing potential entrepreneurs to join the program, that was all we had. We had individuals. So how do you explore someone's sort of like drive, ambition, and sort of like what they want to do with their lives? That's a huge part of things. Even my time at the Africa Leadership Academy really helped as well because they pretty much assess human capacity too. So we, we took a lot of learnings of that. I can definitely share that like more than 50% of investment committee meetings really focus on like the team's potential, how they work together, their past experiences, and how they approach just life and problems, right? So that's a very, very huge part of it. I think traction for us is not necessary, but traction is an interesting proxy for like what have they been able to achieve in such a short time and how they talk about it. We spend a lot of time as well on sort of the market potential, the market that they're in. So how large is the market for primary healthcare? How large is the market for payments between the US and Nigeria, for example? That's because that tends to correlate a little bit with like what we need to look for in terms of domain expertise. So we need both those things to be locked in place. Where we don't spend so much time on is really just the model, because at that point in time, we think the model is going to change significantly, even within the next nine to 12 months. So while we don't spend so much on the validity of the model, we spend a lot of time thinking about how the team thinks about the model and how they crafted it, what were the data points that they used to get there and how they're thinking about adjusting it going forward. We look a lot for that flexibility. Many founders don't really like confronting the fact that their business is going to change dramatically in 12 months. So we try and really find ones that get it, that they're not hung up (laughs) on their approach and their methodology and their tech, and just be open to listening to the market, listening to the customer, and listening to the data. So we spend a lot of time on that too. Finally, I think this is a much lighter lens, but we also look at how we can value add into the company. So will our links with certain large corporates, governments, and other organizations help them in their push and help them in their scale? Are they looking to hire in areas where we have deep networks? And are they looking to fundraise from the kind of investors that we already have arrangement with to sort of follow on from our portfolio too? So those are sort of some additional factors. But man, like half of it really is just the team. And how they vibe. Because again, like it's a five to 10 year relationship if we do it as well. So really, really want to make sure we're working with the right people. What are some of the main industries, themes? I imagine there's been a lot of fintech. What else has been some of the ones that are popping up the most that you're interested in and are funding? So our broad thesis at Sherpa really is businesses that help other businesses do better, which inevitably lends itself to a lot of fintech because a lot of businesses see their primary problem to really be around payments or accessing lending 
or collecting payments from their customers or even keeping track of these payments. So there's a lot there. But I think on top of payments, we also love looking at logistics. We love looking at SaaS software that basically helps them run their business in a better way. And as well, technologies around healthcare and even servicing like their employees for the matter. So basically the entire ecosystem around small business, we love looking at. We try to stay away from consumer more because we don't have a lot of depth in that within the team right now, which is also the reason we haven't looked at Francophone Africa either, which is something that we hope to do more of going forward. But at the moment, we're focused very much on Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, and South Africa. Ultimately, we really care about the ability of our businesses to uplift the other businesses in Africa to do better. I've seen you talk a little bit about, when you talk about businesses, this concept of micro-merchants, MSCs. You want to tell us a little more about those and what that means and thesis behind it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a very interesting sort of sector that we spend a lot of time on. So in my mind right now, there are sort of like two versions of this. One version of this is more commonly sort of seen and understood are your sort of street vendors. So individuals who have a single kiosk, they might sell sort of more daily goods from toothpaste to bananas to sanitary pads to mobile to prepaid credit. And there are a ton of startups that have done very well servicing this audience. And very often you see a very thin line between their individual expenses and borrowing habits and their businesses. There's almost no distinction between the individual and the business. I think more recently, you're seeing a lot more social commerce, which to me are also in many ways, also micro merchants. They are individuals who also have full-time jobs usually, who have been able to find a niche for themselves to access their customer base directly on social or through other digital channels. They might sell something very specific, like eyeglasses or headphones or beautifully tailored shirts or custom sneakers, whatever that is. And I think they don't yet have the same kind of digital infrastructure that a lot of these micro entrepreneurs in the US would have. I think about Shopify and a bunch of other services that exist to like really help anyone start selling in their backyard. So I think these two sort of like categories of micro entrepreneurs really, really excite us as a team. And in one space, it's a little bit more developed. There's a lot more companies working to service them. But I think on the sort of social commerce micro-entrepreneur space in Africa, that's something that's only just beginning to emerge. And you're beginning to see a couple of companies work with them as well. Yeah, I mean, it feels like anytime you see, and I imagine I'd love to hear you comment a little bit, and we'll jump back to Africa specific in a minute, but how much overlap and consistent themes are you guys seeing between LATAM, Africa, Emerging Asia? Is it a lot of the same sort of ideas and challenges or does each have like a totally different set of unique opportunities and roadblocks? One thing I will say is that I think there are a lot of models which are being simultaneously explored. And I think in some geographies, they've just gone a little bit further. So as an example, Paygo is something that has really, really taken off in Africa. And and Africa has developed like a very deep sort of understanding of how to develop Paygo Solar or Pago appliances, or Pago mobile phones, for that matter, that is less developed in Latin America. Not because the market conditions aren't right for it, not because there's any regulation that's sort of like prohibiting it, but I think really just because it hasn't really sort of entered minds, or it hasn't really entered the zeitgeist, and maybe people have tried before. But you are beginning to see a couple of like Latin America-based entrepreneurs push a lot more Pago solutions. You're seeing a lot more success there now. And I think some of that is also being driven by the investors that they have, who have also invested in these Pago solutions in Africa to say, hey, we've already seen all these 
models roll out. This is what's going to hit you in two years. This is what's going to hit you in four years. But we think it's a very exciting methodology to pursue. So I, I think that things are just at a different scale of development. One other sort of like common model that is now emerging across all these markets is earned wage access. So we're seeing a couple of those in Indonesia. We're seeing a couple of those in South Africa. We're seeing a couple of those in Latin America as well. And this idea that how do we de-risk lending to individuals is by actually lending to the companies that they work for and only allowing them to borrow as much as they've actually been able to make. So if they do default, then at least there's a sort of larger corporate to go after. That's a situation where it's driven a lot by the emergence of gig workers across all these markets. Uber has seen tremendous success across the emerging markets, which has given rise to a lot more of the gig economy. And these services are now sort of latching on top of that too. So yeah, I think there are a lot of commonalities in terms of models being explored, but I just think some regions are just going faster than others. How much of it is like that? Of the startups you see in the ideas, it reminds me a little bit, I see some of the pitches like the old German company, Rocket Internet, that would just take ideas that had been accepted and just take them and use them elsewhere. How much of that do we see in emerging markets and how much of it is unique business models specific to their geographies and development? Is there a little both or is it all just Uber and Alibaba clones, et cetera? Yeah, I think it's still a little bit of both. There was a bit of a fervor maybe about three, four years ago of a lot of businesses that popped up, in Africa at least, that were pretty much clones of developed market businesses. This e-commerce site, this food delivery site, everything was pretty much a copy. And I think you've seen that wave subside a little because people have gotten burned, people have learned their lessons. A lot of these models didn't work out because they were adopted kind of like wholesale. And very often they were being run by individuals that had very limited or no Africa experience. They just kind of felt that like Senegal was a new market or Zambia was a new market that had never done this before. Let's see what we can do. So I think that that wave has subsided a little bit. And there's another generation now who I can say might be inspired by models that have been built as well, but are actually hyper-localizing it on the back end. So to the consumer, it might seem as simple as clicking a button and getting access to healthcare or getting access to a loan, but how they sort of like process things on the back end have changed a lot. So there's a lot of hyper-localization, I think. But the models that I think tend to be more resilient than sustainable are sort of like very, very catered to the local environment. And they might take inspiration from elsewhere, but I think what's really worked out is just stuff that's designed for a very specific consumer that's in market. Talk to us a little bit about, I want to get to a few portfolio companies in a minute and just kind of hear little case study ideas about those. But I think one of the areas that most of the listeners would probably want to question or say, it sounds like a hard problem would be not just at the pre-seed stage anyway. I mean, my God, that's hard enough, I think, with sort of established VC community in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. But what's it like in emerging economies, Africa specific, where there isn't as much of a culture of traditional company venture capital style investing? Are there some things that stick out as being particularly interesting or are the entrepreneurs a similar mindset of risk capacity and building? Any just general thoughts? Yeah, a couple. We alluded to this earlier when we were talking about the evolution of a couple of the ecosystems in Africa, right? Where I think seven, eight years ago, a lot of the entrepreneurs 
looking around would only know how to build a tech business that is profitable quickly, is not necessarily hyperscale, doesn't really think about multiple countries in Africa, let alone like multiple regions. So I think that's certainly been something to overcome. And I think we're there. I think that there are much more pan-African communities of entrepreneurs now that are sharing ideas, collaborating, helping each other. There's a lot more pan-African infrastructure. So as an example, like right now, if you're integrated with Flutterwave or Paystack, you can integrate with the same team, regardless of whether or not you're in Nigeria or in Kenya. There might be some tweaks you need to make on the back end, but you're pretty much set and ready to go. So I think that infrastructure is now ready. I think what's most challenging at the pre-seed stage really is just the angel ecosystem. I think we really wish that it was far more developed. We really wish that there were more local businessmen who have made it, who are willing to take the kind of risk on these entrepreneurs that exist in the rest of the world. But I think that's fast becoming a reality because there are a ton of entrepreneurs who have built tech businesses who are beginning to reinvest in the next generation and are willing to take the same kind of risk that they wish other venture funds had taken on them. I look at Ken Jiroge at Cellulant, like one of the very pioneering tech companies in Kenya that had launched multiple geographies very quickly. He recently stepped down as CEO and his full-time kind of focus now is investing in the next generation of tech entrepreneurs in Kenya. So I think you're seeing a lot of tech entrepreneurs who are taking the leads and hopefully with their stories of financial success, are able to sort of pull along other sort of more traditional angels on there as well. But you're right. I mean, pre-seed is one of the, the toughest <laughs> bits of the value chain to be investing in, especially in, in these ecosystems. I was laughing as you're talking about it because I'm like, you better be careful what you wish for. It's good not to have any, uh, a lot of other competitor firms digging in nearby. How much has that changed in the past half decade? Are you starting to see a lot more traditional venture firms pop up or does it tend to be more kind of like similar to what y'all are doing at Sherpa, people that have had experience and early investors there just kind of build out their own shops. Yeah, I want to say that like, especially over the last 12 to 18 months, there's been like an explosion of, I guess, collectives. I'm a big fan of Joe and his team and what they're doing at Hoke. So I think the Hope Fund is this misnomer because I think they've been really good at engaging diaspora all across outside the continent actually to invest in the continent. You've got E doing a fantastic job at Future Africa, again, mobilizing a collective of angels as well. RallyCap, obviously run by Hayden, who focuses on, on fintech and again, is able to rally a group of operators and sort of like fintech-focused experts into investing in, in fintech across these markets. So I think a lot of the most recent spike in sort of super early stage funding is being driven by these collectives, which is very exciting because it's also like very democratic. It's really quite cool. A lot of the LPs are much more highly engaged in the decisioning process and the sourcing process. And, and it really is much more like of a movement, which is pretty cool. That being said, simultaneously, you're also seeing a lot of veterans like of the space who have been running sort of significant funds before now raising much more capital. I think over the next six to 12 months, you're going to see at least, I would say, four to six new firms being announced at sort of 50 to $100 million in size of traditional venture. And very often, they've also recognized that they need to go earlier and earlier down the stages as well to sort of secure that allocation or work with earlier stage funds like us. So I think on both fronts, the collective thing I'm most pumped about because that's a very sort of new thing. So I thought it'd be fun to dig in a little bit. Let's talk about, and this is dealer's choice. You get to pick all of your children that you love equally, but we can pick a few just to kind of 
walk through like an example of a thesis, an investment you made, why it's especially compelling opportunity. So your choice. Maybe one of the first ones that I want to highlight is a company called Koa in Kenya. It's a digital savings play. And what really drew me to them was that I had known Alexi and Delilah, their co-founders, for a couple of years before then in different capacities and have seen them sort of like collaborate together on projects. But from a business model perspective, what was very interesting was their positioning around passive savings. So this idea that you could just make a decision at one point and the service would then be able to sweep savings into a separate account automatically whether you're an Uber driver, and so you can say 10% of like all your earnings goes into a separate account, as opposed to making a conscious decision. Because I think in a lot of these markets, it's been very difficult for a lot of workers to make sort of like planning around their finances. So the ability to kind of like force savings, I thought was quite cool. The ability to integrate with sort of like larger gig economy platforms or factories or large employers of people to then capture the savings for like their entire sort of employee base was very exciting as well. I think as well with the proliferation of lending apps in Kenya, it was time for something that was a little bit more in the other direction, which would help people buffer. I think often people are forced to borrow because they haven't had an opportunity to buffer adequately in the right kind of way. So from a sort of financial health point of view, that was a very interesting opportunity to go after too. So that was sort of what was driving a lot of the initial thesis. Obviously, myself, having spent a long time in financial services, understood that savings was very, very, very much in demand. And a lot of what was inhibiting people from savings was just like that sort of like ease. Like I don't wake up every morning and go like, I should really save today. I should really put aside X amount of money today. I don't do that. But I might do that once a year. Yeah, I mean, the automation is such a underappreciated and significant impact. And we love to use this phrase, like it's not a particularly unique insight, but it's a critical one. And it applies to all the listeners of this show as well on how to automate your finances and budgeting and investing, and particularly to the young folks who can get started early. But this is such a good example. We were talking, one of my favorite books that just recently got updated to what he called the final edition Listeners, if you didn't hear the Thaler episode on his book, Nudge, but it's the exact same concept where you kind of push people, herd them into the right direction. They still got to make their own choices, but automation just makes life so much easier. And you can see the, no matter how small the impact on everyone's balance sheet and savings and investments too. Yeah, absolutely. So I think from a timing perspective, what was interesting for us as well was that we think that the digital infrastructure was also beginning to evolve to support this. So I think one of the challenges, still continuing challenges in Kenya has been the ability to automatically, so to pre-authorize payments, which then get regularly made. This idea of pulling payments from an account is generally like quite challenging. But we've seen a number of technology providers able to start making some headway there. And we hopefully, they will line up just in time for COA to really scale and utilize that technology. And talk to me, so an app or uh, offering like COA, and it's rolling out in Kenya, what is the main customer acquisition? Is it mobile-based ads? Is it browser? Is it word of mouth? Like, what is the way to get to acquire new customers? It's a ton of word of mouth, of course. And I think they're very lucky that their core demographic likes making recommendations to each other and likes talking about the kind of things that they've discovered. Obviously, an analogy given to me by a couple of people before was 
a lot of savers in Africa don't really care about the return so much as that the money is returned. So being able to trust a digital service provider with your money with full confidence that it will come back, I think a lot of the initial users are going to need to come from word of mouth and sharing. And so the core team has focused a lot on sort of enabling their core users and their core champions with tools that they need to sort of spread the word and to sort of like onboard more of their friends and family into it. And I think there's something pretty magical about like having one person be able to share this with like their friend group and their friend group is able to ask them questions about it and solve the day-to-day problems. We've also focused a lot on sort of media to make sure that in the newspapers, in sort of the regular TV channels, it's also regularly featured because I think that's where people look to for validation. Like if you don't exist on television or if you don't exist in the real newspapers that I can touch and feel, are you real? So I think there's a lot of effort that's spent on that. We haven't really looked at billboards with Coa just yet. We're not ruling it out because again, it's a very sort of like proxy to a branch. Instead of having a branch as a physical presence, you have a large sort of like physical billboard. I think, for example, Citibank did this very well with like their branches usually have a much larger visual presence than the actual space that they occupy. Anyway, so I think the initial days is lots more about trust building. I don't think it's necessarily about Facebook ads or Google ads right now at this stage. I think those channels are really good at getting initial registrations and signups, but to really create sort of like that sticky user that advocates for you, I really think that having someone else introduce them to, yeah, makes, makes much more sense. And how easy and how hard is it? I think a lot of people would just assume Africa, hey, it's like the US and 50 states just with 50 different countries. How easy slash hard is it to expand beyond the borders for an offering in one country, say Kenya? Is it an absolute nightmare? Or they're saying like, well, there's five countries you could do it, but 20 you can and 20 are impossible. What's the sort of regulatory logistical unlock that is required there to be able to really be a continent-wide offering? Or is that a total impossibility? It's hard. I wouldn't say it's an impossibility at all. What I'd say is it depends a little bit on the kind of business that you're in and how deeply involved with regulators and infrastructure you are. So as an example, we've also invested in Money Africa Group, which is a little bit more of a content play which obviously requires a lot less integration and licensing. But in Coa's case, because they're taking deposits and taking savings, licensing regime, as you imagine, is pretty rigorous. I think how a lot of startups have been able to overcome that is by working together with larger partners. In Coa's case, you know, they work with some asset managers which cover multiple markets across Africa. So with one integration and one relationship, you can kind of like have a partner to help you expand throughout the others. I think what you're also seeing with a couple of the regulators is that they're also waiting for someone else to regulate something else for the first time. And very often, if you're able to get... So for example, there's a big push towards getting sort of more facial recognition, verification codified into a couple of these regulatory bodies as being sufficient for new customer onboarding. And you see a couple of like countries take the lead. And then once that's done, the other countries kind of say, okay, one guy's done it and we'll sort of jump in as well. I think each country is so, so different. Even within the East Africa community, you can say that language is the same, history is somewhat similar, but the regulatory environment is very, very different. You need fresh integrations when you're going to Uganda and Tanzania. Very often, even the large banks, they grew by acquisition. So their systems in Tanzania versus Kenya are also completely different. So from technical perspective, you need to do that all over again. 
The one region I do want to highlight, though, is the Francophone region, where they do actually share a common currency. They share a lot of common regulators. And so that's, again, why I'm pretty excited about that region in the next couple of years, because that is a true example of something where you could start you know, a payment, you could start a COA in Dakar, and then be able to leverage on that commonality a lot more intensely across Francophone than you would in East Africa. Interesting. That makes sense. You want to get time for one more company you want to talk about and any other startups got you particularly jazzed recently? Yeah, I, I think one more I want to highlight that I'm personally like very excited about <laughs> right now. We actually made our first investment in South Africa only a couple of weeks ago in a company called Spark. And that's in the solar energy space. And again, like going back to team. So Tim Olson, the founder of Spark, actually was previously also the founder of another startup that ended up being one of South Africa's largest digital utilities. So, you know, he was moving millions of dollars of energy like every year. And he really wanted to build Spark within Eldo, which was this digital utility that he had built. And one day he decided Spark was so important that he would actually leave his current business, which was doing very well on the trajectory to like keep on growing fast to build this out. And so what Spark does is it brings together the diagnosis of the solar solution that your home or your property needs together with sort of the installers, as well as the equipment providers, as well as the servicing. But more importantly, they also provide the financing for it through their current partner, Investec. And that was sort of a big genius moment when essentially most of their customers wouldn't have to pay much cash out of pocket and just be able to say, yes, I would like to add solar to my home, increase the value of it as a result, increase my power reliability. And obviously, like South Africa has had its challenges with power reliability over the years. And I think that's really been spiking over the last 12 months as well. And we were very surprised at like how difficult it was for a regular homeowner to say, yes, I want a solar installation and get it all mapped out and on there. And so I think this solution makes is something that we're very excited about because it makes things so easy. It's a significant enough problem that like there are a ton of households that with unreliable power that really want reliable power and with an entrepreneur and a team that has deep domain expertise in power, in energy, in that market. What's the biggest challenge there? Is it a consumer adoption? Is it sourcing the build and the materials? Is it the education? What's the sort of main challenge with scaling that? So I think in the past, it was just if you were left on your own as a consumer, right? Like you would have to figure out what kind of equipment do I need? Where should it face? Who's the best person to install? What kind of equipment? How do I get it regularly serviced? And you might not want to pay upfront for it because solar installations can be very, very expensive. And there's certainly no financing facility out there that has been dedicated to solar facilities as well. This sort of like confluence of making it super easy from a you click a button and it'll figure everything else out for you and put it in your house and figure out the financing, figure out the servicing. Yeah, I think it just makes things super easy. I think it's not a huge leap to think that the same can be applicable to commercial and industrial properties as well. We've done a little bit of research and it seems like even sort of the larger property groups don't really have sort of in-house solar expertise or renewable energy expertise either to be able to put these in there. And so I think it could be a good broader play there too. Yeah. I mean, that's a well-established sort of idea in other countries that, I mean, multi-billion dollar potential for sure. That'll be fun to see what happens with that. Yeah. And I mean, the good news is that you don't need to just focus on selling people the sustainable story. I mean, it's great that it's sustainable and all that as well, but you really just are going from perspective of, would you like to not 
randomly run out of power every hour. Like that's a very easy kind of sell. And so I think there'll be very few homeowners that will say no to that. Yeah, I mean, anytime, anytime you can get the consumer to have some sort of better experience and then layer on the other good reasons why to do it and save the money potentially, that's like the perfect trifecta, right? All right, so you guys, where are we now? Are we in fund one, fund two on Sherpa? Yeah, we're still in our first vehicle. It's allowed us to be pretty nimble and agile. I'm, I'm very transparent with the fact that our own investment process has probably evolved about three to four times since we started. We've definitely have been pushed to make it a lot shorter. So we've moved from eight weeks to six weeks. We're struggling very hard to get it to four. So we're in vehicle one, and we're looking at vehicle two next year. And vehicle two will, as I've hinted earlier, like probably look a lot more at Francophone as well, probably a much more Pan-Africa mandate. And we're thinking very, very intently about what that should look like in the new funding environment. Because when you we were first thinking about putting together Sherpa, our ticket sizes of 50K sort of plus minus at pre-seed rounds made sense when the rounds were 200, 150K in size. Now they are much larger. So we need to scale up together with that. But at the same time, how do we maintain our agility to be able to make decisions quickly when entrepreneurs need that decisioning? And so perhaps we'll have a separate pool of capital that will be a lot more, will be smaller, but also quickly decisioned on. And yeah, we're also raising a small sort of like add-on vehicle to fund one that will just be follow-ons into our existing portfolio because I think a lot of our existing portfolio is doing incredibly well and we want to continue to be able to back them. And we've secured pretty significant parada rights in all of them. And then we definitely want to continue backing these guys going forward. And there's an opportunity for guys to come in there too. Smart. Makes sense. I want to hit on a couple other topics before we got to let you go into the Parisian night, which can last late. So <laughs> any other particular startup ideas that you're just chomping at the bit at, but haven't found the right team or founder set? Or is that even something you think about? Do you kind of let the founders come to you with the ideas? Or is there an area where you're like, man, if someone just did X, I really want this to happen. Please, listeners of uh, this podcast, let me know if you're doing it. Is there anything in particularly in that category or sectors where you want to make one you just haven't? I'd probably say that we would love to make something happen in last mile logistics. And I know many of the listeners out there will say that there's already a lot happening out there in Africa on this, but I don't think many of them have really cracked it. I think a lot of them made a lot of headway, but you still hear of a lot of stories of merchants still going to like riders who are directly contracted or informally organized. And I think there's something we can do there around either route planning or vehicle financing, or in the way we compensate the riders to really be able to get to a price point that makes sense to a lot of these micro merchants. And then why I allude to price point is because whether that's e-commerce or whether that's food, most of the basket sizes are so small that you're very limited in terms of like what the percentage of delivery fee can be within that. So how can we really get that optimized? I would love to see someone do a little bit of that. It's very difficult to do. <laughs> and so like, you know, totally understand why it hasn't. I think that's something that we'd love to see more action on. I think the second opportunity that we would love to see sort of more activity on is also in the SME lending space. So we've already invested in a couple of companies that are doing this, but I think that there's still a lot of white space 
people have come to me and said, like, is there too much investment in SME lending going on? I'm like, well, no, I think there's ones that will focus on working capital. There's ones that will focus on sort of like payroll advances. There's ones that will focus on long-term access to capital and things like that. And I think a bulk of the startups right now are focused on just working capital. Who is going to be there to really help the SMEs grow over a longer period of time? Who's going to really help them organize their own sort of like financial statements to make sense to other investors too? So I think we'll continue to invest very heavily in the SME sort of like lending space as well going forward. That makes sense. I want to hear about Venture for Africa. What's that? So way back, so one of the most common questions I've gotten when I was living in Nairobi was, how do I get over there? How do I join one of these like cool startups working on building the addressing system of the future? I don't know anybody there. How do I break in? And at the same time, I was hearing a lot of this. And simultaneously, you read all the news of like all these new funding rounds being raised. And ultimately, all that funding is meant to go into talent. And most founders I speak to are still really struggling to fill that sort of like middle layer of talent, especially non-developers. So I think there's a lot of support that they get on the C-suite side of things. And there's a good supply of entry-level talent. But I think the sort of middle layer is a bit of a challenge. So that's kind of where Venture for Africa was born. It's a three-month fellowship for individuals to test out if working in startups in Africa is for them. We focus on roles in product, analytics, strategy, finance, marketing. As you can see, anything that isn't a developer. And we focus on individuals with sort of like seven to eight years of experience. What really surprised us in terms of our core groups of fellows has been one of our core groups now is actually people that are already on the ground in these markets. They're just sort of locked away in mining companies and, and telcos and other more traditional enterprises, but they're very curious about what's been happening in the sort of the tech boom. And very often what you also find is that they just aren't in the same social circles or like education backgrounds and whatnot as like a lot of tech founders in these markets. When a founder comes to me and says, I can't find a good head of finance in X market, I'm like, you probably just didn't go to school with them. Or you probably just like, you don't know anyone in mining. So let's make that bridge happen. And obviously, there's a lot of diaspora as well, who've never spent a lot of time on the continent. And for them to say, I'm going to pick up my bags and never look back, I think it's a hard thing for a lot of people to do. But I think to say yes to a three-month fellowship and sort of try it out, see how they go, I think that that makes a lot of sense for sure. And yeah, so it's a program which we've had a lot of success. We're on our fifth cohort now. Almost every startup we work with has come back over and over again. With a number of the companies that we work with, they're on our fourth or fifth fellow now. So it's all very exciting. And I think as the sort of funding surge continues in Africa, talent is going to be really, really important to get right into all these companies too, because money's not really going to be worth anything if you can't spend it on the right people. You can only buy so many MacBooks. <laughs> it's actually, it was like Apple Day today. So that topic was timely. I think people were really upset there wasn't any big MacBook Pro announcements. I'm really upset. It was all iPhone. Yeah. We put your binoculars telescope on, look to the future of the horizon. So let's hear some Aaron predictions for what does the future look like for Africa and startup funding and you guys, if we go three, five, 10 years out, what do people not appreciate or what are some areas that you think are probably not commonly held belief in your mind that other people are unaware of? Just predict the future. Easy task, easy question. What does the future look like for you guys in Africa? Yeah, super easy task. I think 
maybe staying on the investing side of things, I think Africa is going to become a core part of any emerging market fund in the world within the next five to six years. I think people forget that you know there was a period of time when investing in Asia, investing in China, investing in India was a very fringe like activity, let alone investing in, in tech in those regions. So I think Africa is well on its way to becoming a core part of those portfolios. At the moment, I think a lot of firms are still treating it as an experiment and are still testing the waters. But I think in five, six years, they should be a core part that I'm very excited about. I think there's been a significant focus on emerging fund managers as well. And so I think the explosion of collectives and first-time fund managers is going to keep on going. I think it will actually accelerate even further. There are a ton of like amazing entrepreneurs and operators I know who are in the middle of raising their own funds too. So you're going to see like a proliferation of that. Even move as quickly as this push for solo fund managers who are entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. You saw that proliferation happen over the last sort of couple of years too. So I think you're going to see a lot of that too. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how these companies that have recently raised rounds north of $100 million are able to spend their money for growth. And I think they will be watched very closely in terms of the results that they deliver. And I think with those funding rounds, you're also going to see an explosion in talent coming back to the continent. I think before it used to be a trade-off of like, if I'm going to make any money, I need to move to London to be a trader. But if I'm Nigerian, now I don't need to do that. I can stay in Lagos. I can work with Paystack, I can work with Thutterwave and have a very exciting career, make lots of money and be on a great trajectory. So I think that ability to pull back the right talent at the new price points is going to be really interesting. And I think you're going to see a flywheel of like, reinforcing effects. So right now, there's a bunch of articles out there about the investments in API startups across the continent. A lot of that is financial services, but it's also in insurance and a few other sectors too. And that's really exciting because like once they've gotten that right in the next one to two years, the amount of stuff that can get built on top of them, the amount of stuff that can leverage this API here, that API here to really build something interesting, that's going to be like really, really, really cool to see. Like we already saw that M-Pesa gave rise to the possibility to do like a lot of these lending apps and a lot of these like savings apps as well that wouldn't exist without the M-Pesa base layer. So I think we're still building more base layers on top of M-Pesa. And it's awesome that you already got to speak with Mark at Smart ID, but like if he's able to like bring down the cost of like quick, easy, accurate KYC for any startup that integrates into his platform suddenly you've solved a very important problem for a ton of different companies. Whether you're serving micro-merchants or blue-collar workers, KYC is really important. And at the moment, it's still expensive, difficult, regularly fails. And you're going to see those problems get solved because Mark has just raised a bunch of money to make sure that that is solved. So I think you're going to see more of the base layer problems get solved and that will give rise to much more interesting solutions that bring them together. And yeah, my primary hope is really what I began investing in Africa is to see a lot more African tech solutions set up in other markets. And you're already seeing the beginnings of that. So Paga in Nigeria is set up in Mexico City. Lydia is set up in Eastern Europe. Time Bank in South Africa is now set up in the Philippines. And so you're really beginning to see the beginnings of that. And I just think it would just be awesome if that really picked up in pace. So when we talk about the Africa, like the Silicon Valley, hotspots of Africa. You mentioned Lagos, Nairobi. Like, What are the main hubs thus far? I think Lagos is currently leading by far when it comes to like the amount of venture funding 
being received and the kind of companies that's being built. I think it's a function of many things. I think Nairobi still benefits like a ton from being sort of like the hub for East Africa and from still having a very traditional position as if you're curious about digital financial services for the bottom of the pyramid and the underserved, that's where you go to. The allure of like the home of M-Pesa draws a lot of like amazing talent and investors in, into the region too. So I think that that's very exciting. I think those two hotspots will remain. Emerging hotspots, I would say Dakar is going to be very exciting as is Abidjan. I think the jury is still out as to like which one will pull ahead, but I think both will become very exciting. I think Cape Town will remain a hub as well, but I think you've generally seen South African-based businesses to have struggled a little bit when it comes to expanding up to the rest of Africa. And you've also kind of seen a lot of Cape Town-based businesses to really be focused on their domestic markets with maybe some focus on Europe and the US as well. So it's a hub, but I'm not necessarily convinced that it is the Africa hub. It's certainly a great town to spend time in, for sure. Is Egypt kind of its own little country there? I mean, a massive country, over 100 million, I think. Is that inclusive in this African kind of discussion or is it more of its own animal? So I, I don't think this is a commonly held view, so I might get in trouble for this, but I feel in my mind, Egypt is a little bit like an India and Asia context, whereby it's so large and so unique and so different that it should really be treated as its own kind of sort of region with its own kind of thing. So I think it's solving like a slightly different set of challenges. Its demographics are also, again, slightly different. How it's regulated is slightly different. So like that's kind of why we've honestly, transparently like, struggled a little bit to think about how that fits within the broader Sherpa portfolio. Like we want to do more there for sure. But I think what's more likely is that we will launch a Sherpa specifically just for Egypt with a team dedicated to it, with a separate sector focus than the rest of the continent, for sure. With the exception of Swivel and maybe a very few short others, there's been very few Egyptian startups that actually have looked at the rest of the continent as well. So perhaps if there were more guys based in Cairo who want to work with the Sherpa Ventures team to scale across Nigeria and Kenya, that could be a push. But again, it's such a huge domestic market. Like If I were the founder, like I would just go like deep into Egypt and just win that. Yeah, I like it. My Egyptian listeners, hit up Aaron for your new ideas. Pan-Africa dreams, yeah. <laughs> All right. When you look back on your career, you've seen a lot of companies and invested in quite a few as well. What's been your most memorable investment? Good, bad, in between? Anything come to mind? Well, I guess when you put it like that, it almost feels like that career is over. <laughs> it's not. So I think one of the most memorable ones, and I've kind of alluded to them a couple of times during this conversation, is a company called OK High based in Kenya. I think they were one of my very first angel investments in Kenya. And I think what drew me to them was really just the scale of the problem that they're trying to solve. How do we give addresses to people that don't have addresses? And how do we monetize that? Because in most economies, it's meant to be a public good. <laughs> it's not meant to be something that people are willing to pay for. I think what I've learned from that is that with these moonshots, you really need to get a shit ton of capital in there as soon as possible to be able to buy you the runway, to have as much experimentation time as possible, and to bring the right people in and to give it the right push. I think, though, that now the team has really found their way in bank KYC. So the banks are very incentivized to make sure that people have addresses and can verify that they do. 
And so that's been a great sort of like pathway towards like discovering who's going to pay for this. But every day I still learn a ton from the team around like the actual nuts and bolts of being able to figure out how to convince a consumer that an address is important, how to deliver it to them in a way that's useful, while still maintaining this outlook that we are going to change the world by giving millions and millions of people an address for the first time. And I think while they certainly haven't had like a wild exit yet or any kind of like major liquidity event, like I think they're still one of my best investments ever because I learned a ton from them. I think a lot of the startups that I've worked with post have benefited a lot from utilizing their services and they've laid the groundwork for a lot of other companies to build on top of too. So yeah, huge, huge fan of that team and just that wild ambition. I love it. Aaron, this has been fun, educational, insightful. People that want to invest with you, they want to pitch you, they want to continue to read your insights on what's going on in Africa and elsewhere in the startup world, where do they go? If you're a founder, hit me up on Sherpa Ventures, Sherpa.Africa. We have a pretty fun pitch form. I use that word because other people have used it to describe it. I wouldn't describe it that way. We're actually about to introduce a video game that you have to play before you complete your pitch as well, <laughs> which will be a lot of fun. So if you're a founder, definitely go there. If you'd like to chat about investing, my email is aaron at sherpa.africa. Please reach out. We're especially interested in speaking with individuals who have a deep interest in Africa and are willing to get a little bit more hands-on and active with the portfolio. And we're really sort of like flexible with sort of check sizes there too. I would also say that get in now <laughs> before vehicle two rolls around where we will become a little bit more stringent with regards to the kind of investors that we can bring on board. We haven't yet built a video game for the investors yet, but maybe we should. I like it. Aaron, this has been fun. I will let you go back into the Parisian evening, but thanks so much for joining us tonight. No, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the chat. Hopefully your listeners find it useful and take the leap into Africa one day. And also, if they decide to ever come for a physical visit, please also hit me up. I love taking people on like tours to check out the companies as well as the consumers they're serving. Well, maybe like in the Jim Rogers style investment banker, venture capitalist, I personally would be all over that a little tour. When's the best time to come visit? Wait, where is home? Do you have a home, by the way? Or are you just full nomad? What's home base? I'm kind of full nomad. I kind of split my time between Nairobi, Lagos, and New York right now. Awesome. I may uh, tap you on that. What's the best time of year for Nairobi and Lagos? I'd say let's do it around now. <laughs> That's a short notice. So spring, fall is a good time? Spring is great. Even summer is okay. Because I think if, especially if you're coming from the north, you might be a little bit sick of all the heat and you might need a bit of a cool down so that we can swing by a bit of Southern Africa and that kind of can chill out a little bit. I think that's a great idea. I'll have to wrangle up a LP tour. We can come. We'll make it happen. Well, thanks again, Matt. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Cambria Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker symbol SYLD. Are you a dividend investor? If you're focused on dividends alone, you may be missing an important component of returns, stock buybacks. When dividend yield is combined with buyback yield, we refer to that metric as shareholder yield, a metric we feel provides investors a more complete picture of yield. 
Why SYLD is focused on stocks that historically have offered high shareholder yield, it doesn't stop there. The fund targets value stocks as well. The result is a portfolio of historically high shareholder yield stocks with an emphasis on value. Visit www.cambriafunds.com forward slash SYLD to learn more. To determine if this fund is an appropriate investment for you, carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's full or summary prospectus, which may be obtained by calling 855-383-4636, also ETF info, or visiting our website at www.cambriafunds.com. Read the perspective carefully before investing or sending money. The Cambria ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., 1290 Broadway, Suite 1000, Denver, Colorado, 80203, which is not affiliated with Cambria Investment Management LP, the investment advisor for the fund. On June 1st, 2020, the Cambria Shareholder Yield ETF changed its investment objective and investment strategy. The fund also changed from being passively managed to actively managed on that date. There's no guarantee the fund will achieve its investment goal. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. High-yielding stocks are often speculative, high-risk investments. The underlying holdings of the fund may be leveraged, which will expose the holdings to higher volatility and may accelerate the impact of any losses. These companies can be paying out more than they can support and may reduce their dividends or stop paying dividends at any time, which could have a material adverse effect on the stock price of these companies and the fund's performance. Investments in smaller companies typically exhibit higher volatility. Narrowly focused funds typically exhibit higher volatility. The fund is managed using proprietary investment strategies and processes. There can be no guarantee these strategies and processes will produce the intended results and no guarantee that the fund will achieve its investment objective. This could result in the fund's underperformance compared to other funds with similar investment objectives. There is no guarantee dividends will be paid. Diversification may not protect against market loss. Shareholder yield refers to how much money shareholders receive from a company that is in the form of cash dividends, net stock repurchases, and debt reduction. Buybacks are also known as share repurchases. When a company buys its own outstanding shares to reduce the number of shares available on the open market, thus increasing the proportion of shares owned by investors. Companies buy back shares for a number of reasons, such as increase the value of remaining shares available by reducing the supply or to prevent other shareholders from taking a controlling stake.